I tell you, your clapping gets better and better every Sunday. I'm so proud of you. We're going to pray. I invite you to pray with me. Then we'll open up the word. I love you, Lord. We love you, Lord. But more importantly, you love us. And your steadfast love endures forever. You never change. You're not fickle. You keep all of your promises. And as we consider your son, we see them all fulfilled in Christ. So now, Lord, let blessings come from this gospel we believe in. Let your Holy Spirit flow from, this, from Christ himself through the preaching of the word. I pray that you would work in us to be changed, transformed, renewed, given more hope. May the lost be found, and may the found be cared for. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week uh, during our sermon, I had a, had a chance to tell you about two anonymous people in my life who over the years I've seen drift and uh, eventually fall away from the faith. I, uh, I mentioned to you how these people at one time had vibrant prayer lives, how these people at one time studied the word, how they at one time worshipped, how they one time made disciples and gave their lives away to the church, but how slowly and surely they began to drift away from God off into the world. Well, um, I have a praise report this morning that I'd like to begin with, and that is that one of these people just a few months ago called me and told me about his return to Christ in the church. Yeah, so thankful for this. How by God's grace, he's been kept and preserved, shown mercy. My friend is back, plugged into the church, involved in a men's Bible study, leading his wife and family to know and to follow the Lord. And uh, I pray that this lasts. But uh, in my mind, I can't help but ask a question. And that question is this. What if my friend never called me because he never turned back to the faith? What then? Like after all that I've seen to be good and true in his life, and after all that seemingly went away, what were I to do with my thoughts concerning his life and faith? That's a real question. It's a hard question. And it's a question that comes to all of us. How about you? Concerning your loved ones and friends that you might know. How are we together to interpret all that we have seen in them at one time to be good and true that now no longer seems to be good or true? And even more applicably than this, in a sobering way, the greater question is, how do we, in this luring and tempting world, make sure to not fall into the same trap and drift away from God? Well, the good news is that God's word comes to us as a blessing this morning with the grace and wisdom of the gospel for us in Christ. And these are the type of thoughts and questions that I'd like to address in our text. If you have a Bible or cell phone, please feel free to turn it on or open to 1 John. 1 John chapter 2 is where we'll be, and we'll be examining together verses 18 through 27. If you're following along, you'll see that I've titled this sermon, Discerning the World and Guarding Our Lives. From this text, I'd like to show you three things. Number one, the time that we live in. Number two, the gospel that we know. 
And number three, the God who saves. The time we live in, the gospel we know, and the God who saves. We'll begin our time together this morning by reading the text out front. Again, 1 John chapter 2, 18 through 27. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For they had been of us, they would have, not, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be complained that they are all, or all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one denies the, who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. My brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. We are so thankful for it. Right now we're moving to point number one, and I like to show you the time that we live in. Well, um, as we begin our time together, we uh, find ourselves continuing through John's word here in the second chapter. And uh, just like last week, you'll notice how he starts off with this one word, children. It's a term of, uh, of endearment. John here is once again writing in a paternal way as a father would speak to his children with, with love. And he's doing so because as an apostle, it was his role given to him by Christ to lead and oversee the church. And also, as a father would speak to his children with concern for their safety, we see here how John's words come with a desire for their welfare and protection. The two words that John chooses to express his heart for this church are actually noteworthy. Two big buzzwords and or phrases that perk all of our ears. The first word is, or phrase, is last hour. And the second is his mention of Antichrist. The phrase here, last hour, um, and um, yeah, the phrase here, last hour, matches another phrase in the New Testament known as last days. It refers to the whole time between Jesus' first and second coming, or more accurately, between the event of Pentecost and Christ's return. In other words, the last hour here is a reference to what some have called the age of the gospel or the church. And from a biblical perspective, there is only one, one event in history that remains to be accomplished. We see all the people who have lived, are currently living, and will come to live before the second coming as living in this time which we call the end times. And so as we read this text here in a unique way, we are able to identify with John's original audience because we are living in the same 
mega narrative time period. And if you look there in verse 18, John describes this current age by mentioning this word antichrist. Uh, One use of the word is singular. The other one, if you look there, is actually in plural form. John is actually the only biblical author to use this expression. However, Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 24 warned his disciples of false messiahs or prophets who would come to deceive his followers. Even the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians spoke of a man of lawlessness who proclaims himself to be God. And so within the church, there are various interpretations as to whether Antichrist refers to a specific individual or an all-pervading ideology. But regardless, um, what usually happens when people hear this word Antichrist is all of a sudden things begin to um, sound or feel spooky. I can't help but think of Nicolas Cage in my mind. Um, in that early series, Left Behind, it freaked me out. It ruined me as a little child. Um, but, but there's nothing here actually spooky about this text. Why? Because whether the Antichrist be a person or ideology, the scriptures say that he will not prevail, that Christ will. And further, if you look there, after John speaks of this Antichrist in singular form, he then quickly moves away to focus more on the word in its plural form, in verse 18. And if you look there, he says that they had already come. Who is he referring to or talking about? He's talking about the group of false teachers, otherwise known as the Gnostics, who are overtly pushing back on the true Christian faith and promoting another gospel. And the crazy thing here that we must all recognize and understand is that these antichrists or Gnostics were not outright pagan opponents of Christianity, but rather people who had originated from within the church. In other words, they were familiar with the doctrines of the gospel and were attempting to destroy the true faith with new and twisted versions of it. This group was saying that Jesus was not the true son of God, that the Holy Spirit came upon him at his baptism, left him before his passion, that he was not divine and thus lacked the power to save. One man, one commentator named David Jackman said this, what is clear from the New Testament is that the anti-Christian forces will manifest themselves in their relentless opposition to Christ and his church in every generation. There are at least two predominant ideas in the use of this term anti-Christos. The first is of a rival to Christ who claims to possess all the power and ability of Christ. And the second is of opposition to Christ, deliberately standing over and against Jesus, his righteousness and truth. And so what John is doing for us here is demythologizing this word or idea of antichrist so that we as Christians in the church are not spooked or freaked out, but rather are awake and alert to the danger at hand. What is the danger or current condition of our current time or world? The answer, it is that false teaching in the most ordinary in subtle ways, seeks to arise from within the church and lead its believers astray, thus destroying its purity and peace. This is why John is writing to his audience, because these false teachers of the time had taught falsely, thus led people away from the true gospel, and the church had experienced a schism or a great divide. This is why John in verse 19 says that they went out from us, If you look there in verse 22, John asked a simple question. Who is the liar 
right after he gives the simple answer. It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist. In other words, everything depends on what a person believes about Jesus. And if an individual leaves the church and renounces the faith, then faith, and this is what we are to conclude, that they were never part of it. This does not mean that our hearts are not to break over those who we've seen do this. This does not mean that we give up hope on the Lord saving. This does not mean that we stop praying or being gracious or merciful when given the opportunity. It just means that God has given us this use of the scriptures to discern the credibility and authenticity of people's faith. You know, I think it's really easy for us as Christians um, to look at people who have fallen away and think to ourselves, that can never happen to me. Like we see people who have gone far away and astray from the Lord and think, how could that ever happen? But actually, um, it happens more easily and swiftly than one can ever imagine. In subtle and almost undetectable ways or a slow, mostly overlooked, long period of time, somebody can end up falling in love with the world, drifting away from God or believing in something that is anti biblical. John is writing here to the church and saying, beware, there is such thing as false teaching. It is real and dangerous. And it threatens to ruin the health and prosperity of our soul. And you and I experience false teaching in all different forms, shapes, and sizes. Yesterday we were out gardening and, um, some Jehovah's Witnesses came up to um, our house. I wasn't there. Lizzie was. She answered the door. Um, the cult of the Jehovah's Witnesses believe um, that Jesus is the archangel Michael, was the highest created being, and the denomination itself rejects the doctrine of the Trinity. Christ was not created. Christ is the creator. He is God, the second person of the Trinity, the triune God. Another well-known um, false gospel that resides around the church is found in the Church of the Latter-day Saints, otherwise known as the Mormons. If you dig into their faceism, what you'll actually find at the core is that they're polytheistic, meaning they worship many gods, not one god. And then the followers of Jesus, their Jesus, they use Jesus as another term, at the end of their life and death, raised to be gods themselves. And we, as Christians, might hear those false doctrines and think to ourselves, no way, I will never believe in that. That is way off track. And I praise God for that. I pray that's true for all of us. But Paul is, or uh, John is saying, beware, uh, these things are still dangerous. They're, they're dangerous. And on a closer note, within the evangelical church or the church itself, I'd like to highlight three false teachings that are leading people astray. Number one being the priority, um, the prosperity gospel. What is the prosperity gospel? The prosperity gospel at its core believes that God exists for man. That God exists to serve man for his health, for his monetary blessing, and for his overall well-being. That like Jesus is like a genie in the bottle. If you just rub him right, he'll come and serve. He'll make your life great. We don't believe that. We believe that God exists for his own glory. And we find our greatest joy 
in that. The second false teaching that has crept its way into the doors of the church, which is largely unnoticeable, is the gospel of moralism, which from the pulpit says you should be a good person. If you just try harder, pick yourself up by your bootstraps and live a more morally good life, God will love you and accept you. Our faith could not be more opposite than that. What do we believe as Bible-believing Christians? That we are dead in our sin and have not the ability to do anything righteous before the holy God, except by his sovereign grace and mercy, he saves us, gives us the spirit, and and, and empowers us to live a life of righteousness and holiness. What is the third false teaching that has crept into the church? The liberal church. When I use the word liberal, I'm not referring to politics. I'm referring to the scriptures. What does the liberal church do? They attack the deity of Christ by teaching Jesus' teaching from the scripture, only his teaching as good lessons, but not at all exalting him for his person. And then they take the scriptures and they twist them so to meet our current time and culture with relevancy. I mention all of these things because what I want you to know about each one of these false teachings is that all of them claim to be Christian. Every single one claims to believe in Jesus. They clothe themselves in holy garments, but are nothing but wolves in sheep clothing with the intention to lead people to the pit. And so we have God in his word this morning calling out to us, saying false teaching is dangerous. And the day that you and I think that we are above it, not vulnerable to it or susceptible to it, is the day that Satan himself will have us right where he wants us to be. God would not have included this instruction or warning in his word if he did not think it was a danger, thus that we should take heed. God does not save all people. Good people don't go to heaven. All roads don't lead to the same God. Don't believe the lie of the culture which says if you're just spiritual enough or take time to tap into the inner powers of of the universe which promote good and love that we all can find God in our own way. It's not true. If you look there in verse 23, John says, no one who denies the son has the father. And Jesus himself said in John chapter 14, he said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the theological test that must be applied to any and all religious teachings or ideas. And pulling back, I'd say that this is a missional text for us, for those who have received the saving grace of the mercy of God. Because what this awakens us to is the fallen condition factor of millions, probably billions of people in this world who are being held captive to false doctrine and false ideologies. Systems, religious systems that blindly are leading them to destruction. Therefore, we as gospel people who love Christ must not only believe in this gospel, but live it in such a way that we carry it in our hands and take it to the lost and say, look, there is only one way, and I'm offering you this one way through this one person. He is the saving Savior who saves alone the gospel of Jesus Christ. Unwaveringly, unmovingly, with fear and trembling and humility. 
Is this the way that you think about your faith? There is a prince and power of the air who is at work in this world longing to lead and lure people away from the gospel of Jesus Christ, Christ himself and his church. Therefore, 1 Peter chapter 5 is right. Be of sober mind. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in your faith. And I'd add, preach the gospel, live the gospel so the lost might be saved with this gospel that first saved us. Amen? Well, that was point number one, the time we live in. We're going to continue to move through our text. And now I'd like to show you point number two, which is this gospel that we know. I don't know if I've ever told you this before. Forgive me if I have. Uh, I'm a white boy who wears collar shirts, who's reformed and ordained as a Presbyterian preacher. But in my spare time, secretly in my car, I like to jam out to rap music. I like to pretend that I'm cool and from the hood. If someone ever uh, put a video on my car, I'd look ridiculous if they showed it to people. Um, But the reason why I like rap music is because it's raw and real. And so in my spare time, I've been listening to this guy named uh, Ishan Burgundy. He has incredible beats. His tunes are sick. And ever since the time that I began to listen to Eshan or Ishan, I've noticed anytime that he raps about the gospel, he does so in a very nuanced, unclear way. It's kind of bothered me to digest and understand his lyrics. I haven't understood really what he believes, although the word gospel in Jesus is everywhere in his raps. And so this week I took time to figure out what he believes. And he has this 30 minute session of an interview on YouTube where he articulates his faith. And there was this moment in the interview that I had an aha moment about what he actually believes. He said this, he said, you know, a lot of people have given me backlash lately um, and told me how I've lost hold of the gospel and moved away from it and how I should get back to it. But here's how I look at it. The gospel is really important to me. It's central to our faith, but it's not everything. I think of it this way. The gospel is the front doors to God's house. You don't get into God's house without the gospel. But after you get the gospel, you have to ask yourself, what's next? God is huge. His house has many rooms. It needs to be explored. So we must get the gospel, of course, but after we get it, we must move on and pursue deeper understanding and knowledge of the things that are hidden in God's word. And this was it right here for me. This is where this amazingly talented man and musician, whom I've come to love mistakenly, has gone tragically wrong. Why? Because none of God's word, not even the smallest bit, exists to move us on or past the gospel. But all of it and every text and story exists to move us toward and into the gospel. In other words, the gospel was, is, and always will be for us as Christians, everything. And this is why John is writing, because these false teachers here were claiming to have special knowledge, deeper insight, come to experience deeper, more spiritual things over the church, the original church, the church of the apostles that was embracing the gospel. John is saying to them through this letter, nope, don't you dare believe it. It's not true. It will never be true. I'm writing to call you back to that which is from the beginning. 
chapter 1, verse 1. To that which we heard and seen and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. We have seen it, we testify to it, and we proclaim it to you, eternal life, so that you might have fellowship with us, the apostles, as we indeed have fellowship with God the Father and the Son. Chapter 2, verse 7. I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had heard from the beginning. Verse 24 of our text. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will be able to abide in the Son and in the Father. What was it that this church heard from the beginning? The gospel. The message that God the Father's love has been displayed and poured out in and through his divine son, Jesus, who made atonement for their sin on the cross, died, was buried, and on the third day was raised so that they might receive through grace forgiveness, eternal life, and fellowship with God himself. Period. This is the gospel. You can't graduate from it. It isn't a stepping stone to go on to experience or embrace more deeper or spiritual things, you can only grow further into it. Why? Because it is here alone, this message that saves, that brings us into true, true fellowship and knowledge of the eternal God. If you look there in verse 27, John says this, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. John is not saying that this church shouldn't continue to be taught. He here himself is indeed teaching them, but rather he is saying that they need to know nothing further about God and his saving grace. In other words, everything that we need to know about life, faith, and godliness has been revealed to us in and through Jesus Christ. Therefore, we as Christians reject any special claims or new understandings or special revelations of God and or his Son. And in order to do that well, we must know what we believe. You know, oftentimes in church, especially in theological churches that appreciate academic study, you might hear some people say, what's, uh, what's the use of all that theological head knowledge? You know, like, give us something practical. Teach us how to love or serve. And I love this practical desire, but the fact is this. We will never be able to truly love or serve the Lord and others in a distinctly Christian way if we do not first know God and his word. What John is doing here is making doctrinal distinctions, separating truth from lies. Therefore, what we learn here is that we are not to allow doctrine or knowledge to be dismissed as cold or barren, but rather are to value and pursue it. And here's the thing that you and I both all know. There are some people who claim to be Christian who know the Bible inside and out, can quote verses from the back of their head, maybe the Westminster Confession of Faith, tell you all about church history, but actually don't know God. That's a, tr that's a tragedy. But it is not possible to truly know God if you do not know him and his word. You probably heard of our father in the faith, Tim Keller, who passed away this weekend. So thankful for his gospel legacy and life. Here's what Tim, Pastor Keller, said about this topic. We need to be careful of saying to people, just believe. 
Because what we're really saying is, believe because I said so. And that sounds like a power play. That's very different from Paul who reasoned and proved the gospel in the book of Acts and from Peter who called us to give the reason for our hope. If our response to people in light of truth is, our beliefs may seem utterly irrational to you, but if you just see how much we love one another, then you want to believe too, then we'll sound like a cult. So we do need to defend our faith by answering the question, why? And I'll add, what? So what I want to do here, just for a short second, is read through with you five doctrinal truths to do two things. Number one, for those of you here who are new to our church, so you can see what we actually cling to as matters of first importance. And number two, for those of you Christians who do believe, do believe in the gospel, for you to remind, be reminded of what is your only saving hope and faith. Here's what we believe about God. We believe in one God, creator of all things, who is holy, infinitely perfect, and eternally existing in a living unity of three equally divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Same in substance and equal in power and glory. Here's what we believe about Jesus. We believe that Jesus is God incarnate, fully God and fully man, one person in two natures, that he was conceived through the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, that he lived a sinless life, and that as our representative and substitute, that he died on the cross as the perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins. His atoning death and victorious resurrection constitute the only ground for salvation. We believe, you can worship with me as we read this, we believe he arose bodily from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father as our high priest and advocate. Hear this gospel of good news. Here's what we believe about the Bible. We believe the Bible is the written word of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit and without error in the original manuscripts. The Bible is a revelation of God's truth and is infallible and authoritative in all matters of faith and practice. All people. What do we believe about people in the entire world? We believe that all people, men, women, and children, are made of the image of God and with this have an ability to express and display his beauty and image. However, because of sin nature, we are ultimately unable to save ourselves from God disple God's displeasure except by his mercy. Here's lastly salvation. You can get a take on what we believe saves at this church. We believe that salvation is accomplished by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. Why did I take time to read these things to you? Because it is this gospel here that has enabled the church to last the test of time. This is the original teaching of the apostles that has lasted the test of time and preserved the saints in God's kingdom to flourish. And this is the gospel that will ultimately keep us until the second coming. Thus, I encourage you to hold fast to these truths. This is the gospel, my brothers and sisters, and this is where our hope and faith and salvation are found. Amen? I'd like to finish our time together and lastly in the third point, to remind us all of the God who saves I want to show you grace and assurance that we as believers get in all of this. If you look there in verse 20, after John speaks about those who have fallen from the faith, 
he actually begins the next sentence with the word, but. And what he's doing with this word is making a comparison and contrast theme and pointing to the fact that there is a distinguishing mark between those in the church and those in the world. And the distinguishing mark has been made by God himself. It is identifiable. He says this, but you, church, have been anointed by the Holy One. Notice here how God is the one who's active. And the church here is the one who's passive, receiving his benefits of grace. In other words, God himself is performing the distinguishing mark, and it is atonement, or I'm sorry, anointing. This word for anointing here in Greek is charisma. It it relates to um, the word Christ. What John is saying here is that all believers have the anointing of Christ because Christ himself, who is the anointed one, has personally given this to them. And so what exactly is John referring to with use of this word anointing? The answer, the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit of Christ is is the anointing that we receive as an act of God's free grace the moment that we believed and were saved. The Holy Spirit is God's sign and seal of all of his assured promises to us. What the Holy Spirit does for you and me is is bring us into saving knowledge of Christ. And so when you see the word knowledge in verse 27, John is not merely talking about head knowledge through doctrine, but he's moving on a step further through the context of the Holy Spirit and talking about saving knowledge, illuminating knowledge, an ability for the eyes and the the ears of the heart to, to be opened and see and hear and behold the gospel. This is what the Holy Spirit does for us as Christians. It awakens our souls to the the reality, the existence, and the saving grace of God through his son, Jesus. The Holy Spirit is God's promise of grace, of intimacy, of love, of salvation, of hope, of assurance, of fellowship with God. The Holy Spirit is the sign of you being justified. The Holy Spirit is the sign of you being adopted. It is the sign of glory, of righteousness. And so the question is, how can we, in the face and threat of this world and false teachings, be assured that we will be kept and saved? The answer, the Holy Spirit living inside of us, who dwells and lives to testify to these things. Jesus is saying, or said, he is the helper. He is the one who leads into all truth. He is the counselor, the moral compass, the saving antidote. And so as we conclude, what I'm trying to say is that intellectual understanding of doctrine is not merely enough. Though it is the starting place for faith, Christ is received by believing in him. And the true mark of a Christian is being born again by the spirit of God to the saving graces of God. Have you been born again? Have have the eyes of your heart truly been awoken to this hope in such a way that your life changes from believing in the Savior? It is not enough to confess, but to confess with dependence that God alone can save and he 
He is sure to keep his promises. The Holy Spirit is the defining mark of salvation. I'm asking you if you're saved. If you have the Spirit inside of you, what will happen to your soul is that you will begin to desire God and love his word and hate sin and be discontent with the ways that you fall short and mess up and be satisfied and pleased with this idea that the God of heaven died for you, enamored by this idea of love. These are the saving marks of a Christian. And it is in this grace alone that you and I are able to um, respond to the commands of this text. What are the commands of this text? Well, five times in this text, after teaching these doctrines, John says, abide in Christ. Do you want to know how to abide in Christ? Let me give you two ending tools for you in your faith. Number one, stay in God's word. And number two, fellowship within the family of believers here in this church. James, those seem pretty ordinary. I know, but they are extraordinary. God's word is no ordinary book. It is literally the written word of God where the spirit comes alongside of it to awaken, encourage, and bless our souls. And God's people are no mere group of ordinary people, but they are the redeemed. And the place where God himself has chosen to dwell and work. So in all of this, I'm saying that we have all that we need to live a life of faithfulness in light of the luring temptations of this world and false teaching. What are they? They are the Holy Spirit, the Word of God himself, and each other. So my gospel um, missional application for you is, would you commit your life and your spare time to this church? This is why church attendance is so important. This is why... I encourage you to get involved, not merely to get involved, but to actually mingle alongside of saints who God himself calls holy and beautiful. I'll, I'll close with this quote. If we belong to Christ, then we belong to his church and the mark of belonging is remaining. So when the going gets tough, when the grass looks greener and when our fellow Christians seem not to understand us, it is here and then where we need God's people the most. My brothers and sisters, I pray that the gospel would help you discern our time and hold fast to Christ and his church. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. You're so gracious to give us yourself. And then after that, like give icing and cherries on top of the cake with your Holy Spirit and with the church. Oh God, would you call us to yourself through your spirit, to your word, and to the people here. May we trust you through ordinary things and imperfect things for you to work and keep your promises. So make rich the fellowship of this church and make rich your word for us, Lord. And give us a spirit of steadfast perseverance because we know that you promise to keep us. For those of here who don't have the spirit, I pray they would cry out for you to save. And for those here who have it, increase it, Lord, in an encouraging way. We can walk strong and resolute towards our goal of glory. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen.